Inflation getting higher Makes it hard on the buyer Unemployment on the rise Gasoline issue filled with lies Rent being paid late Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And today we'll be looking at uh, the writings of John Kenneth Galbraith. Specifically, we'll be looking at the second half of The Great Crash, 1929, which is Galbraith's account of of the the stock market crash of 1929 obviously the and, and a little bit about the cause of the great depression although that kind of comes at the end of the book it's not his prior focus his focus is on bubbles and why they happen and why this particular one happened it's it's the most narrative of all of his books that at least are in this uh, library of america collection the rest are a little bit more theoretical a little bit more um I mean, they're all academic books, but they're, this one is the one that actually sort of tells a story. It has a, a cause, the event itself, and then the aftermath. The rest are much more economic theory type text. And that way it, it kind of doesn't fit in with the rest of the text as easily, but it is an interesting one. And I think, as I talked about the last time, I think the best, the biggest contribution of this particular book, The Great Crash, is that it establishes that that uh, media perception, the kind of the culture of the times was at the heart in some way of the stock market crash. And yeah, there were other failures of the executive branch and the Federal Reserve and banks and investment banks and all that. And you, the blame can be shared a little bit, but at the heart of this, there's this narrative of, of the media and people making economic decisions over based on the culture that they lived in and that culture was one of get rich quick right um, and the stock market was if not the best one of the best ways to get rich in the late 1920s get rich quickly um, and the media promoted that and the, the culture of the time promoted it. even people who weren't in the stock market read about it and knew about it and he's got a really great chapter in the first half where he talks about how like all of academia kind of became obsessed with the stock market for a period of time. So the first four chapters of the book do I think a really good job of setting up the the feel of the time of the of the 19 uh, the 1920s especially the late 1920s right up to the brink of the crash. Now uh, where I'll pick up today um, is just right where I left off. That'll be chapter five the crash. And here's actually the first time he talks about the, the depression in the relationship with the crash. The first half of the book, he doesn't mention the Great Depression really at all. It, it's, it's, of course, in the backdrop of anyone thinking about this event, but it's not in the focus of Galbraith's um, research or, or study. But finally, now he's having to talk about it. And he says this, Thus viewed, the stock market is but a mirror, which perhaps in this instance somewhat belatedly provides an image of the underlying or fundamental economic situation. Cause and effect run from the economy to the stock market, never the reverse. In 1929, the economy was headed for trouble, especially that trouble was violently reflected in Wall Street. So this uh, that's, I think, an important kind of theoretical insight that the stock market is always reflecting economic fundamentals. And however strong your culture of get rich quick, of, of you know, the, the, 
as much as the media may have pimped and, and propped up the stock market, ultimately the economic fundamentals will, will come home to roost here. But what doesn't happen is the stock market crash doesn't cause the Great Depression. And I think that's a misconception. If you, you know, when I ask my students, what do you think the cause of the Great Depression is? No one says a demand crisis caused by deflation, the gold standard, um, you know, the effort to kind of return to normalcy after the mass government spending of World War One. You know, you don't get that. Um, instead, people say the stock market crash, right? And Galbraith here is saying that's not really what happens. You know, the stock market is what it is because at some level it has to reflect economic reality. Maybe distorted by the media, but it's still at the end of the day. It can't, you, it can't fool, the stock market can't be, be fooled for, for too long. Or the economic, I'm sorry, I should say the economic reality can't be fooled for too long and eventually it will make itself um, known to all. But once he establishes, the question you can ask then is, does the stock market matter at, at all, right? And, and I think he says it, it does in a way, that it, it deepened the recession, the depression. It, of course, was a shattering of a symbol of the national economy and national life at the time. So it has those uh, psychological roles in, in kind of shattering this faith in the American economic system. So the crash, although a fundamentally an economic thing, also, just like the boom, became a cultural phenomenon and very, very close tie to this feeling of the time. I will say, if you want the daily blow-by-blow -blow narrative of, of the stock market crash, you can read this chapter in detail. I mean, it's basically a day-to-day -day description of, of, of the trades, of the of what the newspapers were saying and the, the fate of the stock market each night. And he uses some various stocks to, to test the, the, you know, the price and all that. But much of this chapter is that kind of day-to-day, -day, you know, he, he gets it from reading the newspapers, I think, uh, of the time. But he is able to record the, you know, from the business press what happened in a day-to-day -day thing. And chapter six is more of the same. It's called Things Become More Serious. And this one also describes the you know, the events of October 1929. But he does make a distinction. Kind of, it's kind of like chapter called The Crash deals with like the first week and things become more serious deals with the aftermath after that. And he makes an interesting point that I didn't think about before, I wasn't aware of, that the victims of the first week tended to be the more lower class investors. He calls them, he calls them the slaughter of the innocents. But he adds... Quote, during the second week, there was some evidence that it was the well-to-do and the wealthy who were being subjected to a leveling process comparable in magnitude and suddenness to that presided over a decade before by Lenin. The size of the blocks of stock which were being suggested were offered suggested that big speculators were selling or being sold. Another indicator came in the boardrooms. So it starts to affect the people at the top much more after the second week. And, and here's where we kind of get... Uh, a shout out to Galbraith's thesis in American capitalism. And that is Americans have never been really been comfortable with power and economic power, especially. And sometimes that manifests in the union movement or the populist movement, but often it's, uh, it's kind of what happens is Americans just become blinkered to economic realities. And they, they believe in myths like the Adam Smith free market stuff. And and the stock market crash was one of those moments that exposed Americans to the reality of economic power. Quote, despite a flattering supposition to the contrary, people 
came readily to terms with power. There's little reason to think that the power of the great bankers, while they're also assumed to have it, was much resented. But as the ghosts of numerous tyrants, from Julius Caesar to Benito Mussolini, will testify, people are very hard on those who, having had power, lose it or are destroyed. The anger at past arrogance is joined with contempt for present weakness. The victim or his corpse is made to suffer all available indignities. So I guess actually what he's saying here is maybe to some degree Americans understood his argument in American capitalism, understood that it was a handful of big corporations. I mean, they knew Rockefeller and Morgan and, and those people. And, you know, you can't ignore it. You can have the mythology of the market, but you just look at the newspaper and you know the truth. But once you come to terms with that, then as long as they're winning, they're fine. If they start to lose, then they get dethroned and, and they have much farther to fall because of the heights that they have been um, uplifted both by culture and by just the economic power they accumulated. So those two chapters of five and six more or less tell the history of the crash itself. In, in brief, it's not a very long book overall, and those are short chapters. But then we get in seven and eight, two chapters, both called Aftermath. So it's Aftermath 1 and then Aftermath 2. And what are the consequences? What is the immediate and more long-term aftermath of the stock market crash? Well, the first one is, is kind of interesting for people who are just curious about this, is the suicide um, rate. Um, some people have made the point, or there's some anecdotal evidence. There are a few high-profile bankers who did kill themselves in the aftermath of the, of the stock market crash. So we get this impression of like kind of a popular perception of bankers jumping onto the windows by the, by the hundreds or something on, during the day of the crash. And he just says that didn't happen. Um, you know, he actually gives the numbers of suicides per 100,000 for New York City. 1929, it's 15.7. 1929, it's 17. 1930, it's 18.7. And it goes up during the Great Depression a little bit, but it's not like it didn't increase wildly in the aftermath of the stock market crash. It, you know, and it had been, it's sore going up in the late 20s already. So, uh, nationally, though, New York City goes up a little bit higher although it starts to go down in 33 and 34. But in New York, it, it kind of hover, or for uh, um, for registrationary, I'm not sure what that means. Um, is the part of the country, most of it, where it caused the death? So I, I think that's the whole country. Um, it kind of goes up and down throughout the, the 20s and to the mid-30s. So it's not causing a suicide run, but it did cause, for instance, increased consumption of alcohol. Um, which he's able to, to demonstrate. Uh, the next thing he mentions as an aftermath to this was embezzlement, an increase in the amount of embezzlement crimes committed by Americans, which is, is rather fascinating. I guess as people lost money on the stock market or lost sources of income, you know, they tried to make up for it because they wanted to keep their standard of living. And, and that's something we would expect people. I mean, that's why America's gotten into so much debt when wages started to flatten in the 70s, right? As they wanted to, they got the credit card to keep up a rising standard of living despite their incomes not being significantly more. Um, so we can imagine that this makes sense, that, you know, this embezzlement period, you know, this embezzlement kind of, of what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a crime wave of embezzlement, uh, afflicted America afterwards, after the crash, including the United Industrial Bank of Flint, which lost $4 million in embezzlement. So um, 
Um, what about politics? He has a section here on politics. Um, of course, you have uh, Hoover, who um, you know was aware of Keynes, and you have Roosevelt, of course, who was aware of Keynes too. But he's not really interested in the long-term path to the New Deal. He's really interested in the more immediate efforts here. And, and Hoover did like respond to the crash uh, with some almost Keynesian logic, uh, something that most people assume it was only Roosevelt who kind of came in with Keynes. But Galbraith here points out that, you know, Hoover was aware of him and, and had meetings about, about him. But uh, he says here, to suppose that President Hoover was engaged only in organizing further reassurances is to do him a serious injustice. He was also conducting one of the oldest and most important and unhappily one of the least understood rights in American life. This is the right of the meeting, which is not so much to do business, but to do no business. It's a right which is such and much practice in our time. It's worth examining for a moment. End quote. And this, this is kind of complicated because, of course, Ro Hoover can get blamed for not doing enough, you know, especially when you compare it to Roosevelt and his administration. But Galbraith seems to think there was some value here in, in kind of stability and, and the, this perception of, of normalcy. At least in building up kind of popular um, steadiness in the face of, of the crash. And it seemed that it did lead to a, a recovery of the stock market in early 1930. Um, so chapter eight is called Aftermath, just two. It's, it's a continuation of it. I don't know why you just have it in one, one, one chapter. They're not very long. Again, this is a pretty brief read. Um, but what do we have here? We have a lot of wealth was obviously destroyed. A lot of families saw their their wealth decrease significantly. Still members of the of the elite, I, I think, for the most part. But you know, certainly significant haircuts all around here. And he doesn't really get into the numbers, though. I think you know, if you read someone like Thomas Piketty, you know, you're, you're kind of used to charts with your economics books, and Galbraith's not really interested in that. Um, so some of the great banks were devastated, according to Galbraith. Chase and National City were the most important in, in really being devastated by this. Um, yeah, National City was the worst hit. And most of the rest of this chapter deals with various aspects of, of the banks, like the reputation of the banks, how the banks got blamed. So as important as like the actual financial impact on the banks was the blow to the banks reputation um, and he kind of repeats something he said before um, that like if you have power maybe Americans will come to accept it but if you if you fuck it up you know you won't be forgiven so easily quote our political tradition sets great store by the generalized symbol of evil this is the wrongdoer whose wrongdoing will be taken by the public to be the secret propensity of the whole community or class we search avidly for such people not so much because we wish to see them exposed and punished as individuals but because we cherish the resulting political discomfort of their friends. To uncover an evil man among the friends of one's foes had long been a recognized method of advancing one's political fortunes. However, in recent times, the technique has been greatly improved and refined by the added firmness to which the evil of the evildoer is now attributed to friends, acquaintances, and all who share his way of life. Um, it's hard not to read that paragraph and not think of like the Epstein um, scandal in, in, in more recent American history where... Um, a lot of, obviously it was a horrific thing, so I want to, you know, but still I think there was a lot of schadenfreude about the wealthy 
and, and the fact that like he was connected to all these different wealthy important people from both political parties and the fact you know the fact that they're all kind of complicit in this is, is kind of satisfying in a way because it reveals the reality of of the system we live in at its most brutal and and disgusting and then he sort of wraps this up with a history of of whitney uh, of, of a smaller bank because he wants to say how some of the 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 impact on some of the smaller banks affected the main street a little bit more than the big investment banks uh, the crash or the, the decline of the big investment banks so um with that we come to it chapter nine cause and consequence so this is the chapter which you might want to read if you're just interested in the, his opinion on the great depression because it's um it's what you know he didn't really talk about the great depression elsewhere in the book he's just talking about the crash and its aftermath this one deals specifically with the, the great depression um, so what caused the Great Depression, according to Galbraith? This is the key, key thing. It's been debated uh, ever since. Um, it's been, uh, you know, different points of view, left and right and the middle, have tried to unpack this, this, uh, this question. And what does Galbraith focus on? Well, first, he focuses on, quote, the bad distribution of income, essentially income inequality. Quote, in 1929, the rich were indubitably rich. The figures were not entirely satisfactory, but it seems certain that the 5% of the population with the highest income that year received approximately one-third of all personal income. Now, why is that bad? Well, you know, Galbraith obviously is a, is a Keynesian, um, and he says the problem with that is you don't then have the demand. If you have high inequality, you're not going to have the demand you need to, to sustain a consumer economy. The rich with all this wealth may save more they may they'll spend less of their income than the poor and the working class and so they save the rest and this creates kind of an imbalance between investment and, and spending and, and and you just get this lack of demand or if you want to take the marxist approach you know this is just the the essential problem of exploitation and why that creates capitalist crisis but galbraith's not a marxist so um he comes at it more in the keynesian approach so that's his first uh, claim, and many people agree with him, I think. Next, a bad corporate structure. What does that mean? Well, he basically thinks trusts created a weakened corporate structure that which really couldn't plan and, and survive a crisis like, like this. I mean, you ended up with heavily leveraged firms and things like that. So yeah, that's, that's the problem with the corporate structure. And, you know, well, what does he say here? Quote, the most important corporate weakness was inherent in the vast new structure of holding companies and investment trusts. The holding companies control large segments of the utility, railroad, and entertainment business. Here, as with investment trusts, was a constant danger of devastation by reverse leverage. You know, just like 2008, right? The subprime uh, mortgage scandal. You end up with over-leveraged um, firms. Um, three, the bad banking system. Um, so what was the problem here? Well... You know, of course, at one of the New Deal policies was the Glass-Steagall Act, which separated investment and consumer banking. Um, many people, still people think that that's wise and it was a bad idea to undo it. Um, that's part of it. That kind of the fact that bankers weren't acting responsibly 
as you know the job of providing credit to communities for for whatever for development for businesses for homeowners instead they were involved more and more in the stock market and investment the other problem and this is maybe a little ironic when we look at where banking has gone since is the large number of independent units um, quote when one bank failed the assets of others were frozen while depositors elsewhere had a pregnant warning to go and ask for their money this one effect led to other failures, and these spread with a domino effect. Um, end quote. And, you know, if we value competition, I mean, people bemoan, like, the centralization of, of, of banks. And, um, you know, and I don't really know the answer to that question. What's better, more community banks and credit unions or a handful of banks heavily regulated? Like, is, is banking a natural monopoly or, or should it be? It's I could I could see the case for that, but I don't know enough about banking to really know if if it makes sense to be a natural monopoly. I guess I guess you see in socialist countries efforts to create like just a handful of consumer banks, but even China here you have many many different types of banks. I just don't know how they're operated and regulated. Um, but they were also small, and you know panic could spread quickly between them. Um, I don't know. It's, it's not really well explained here, to be honest. Um, basically, the convulsions of failure could spread quickly because of a poor banking system. Um, four, the dubious state of the foreign balance. Basically, uh, because the U.S. had lent so much money to Europe uh, during the war, first to Britain and France, and then later on to help the Germans pay reparation payments, which... Uh, basically, it became, the U.S. became the major creditor for Europe, and this wasn't compensated with with equivalent amount of foreign trade because of protectionism. That's my understanding of how, of, of the Galbraith's logic here. That's how I read it, but um, that's what I think he's he's trying to say here. That so if you have if you're a creditor, right? I guess the idea is to have that balance is you that's paid back in trade, in a trade surplus, right? But that's why the U.S. didn't have that because of protectionism, uh, which was the thing at the time, right? All right, uh, and he gives different examples, both Latin America and Europe. Five, the poor state of economic intelligence. I mean, this is, of course, I think something he was hinting at throughout the book, is that like the perception of the market was skewed by the media and the press, and yeah, there was intelligence available, but there wasn't that much of it. At one point, he says, basically, there's just a couple of, of newspapers that they could go to to get the daily sheets, you know, but it, you didn't have like now, if you want to invest, you get you can get a whole portfolio right about a company and you can decide if you want to invest based on all this public information. They just didn't have that. So basically, you bought it based on whim or rumor or the, the way the stock's going. And this meant people couldn't really make wise investment choices. That seems to do more to cause the crash than the Great Depression itself. Um, but anyways, that's, uh, that's his kind of rundown of the causes of the, of the Great Depression. Ultimately, it comes down to a demand crisis. That's what the Great Depression was. It was a demand crisis caused by inequality and, um, and, and other things. Um, then he deals with the question I guess everyone's asking when they pick up this book after the stock market crashes and they're like, wow, I want to know what happened in 29. So they pick up this book is will happen again. And he's actually fairly optimistic, I think, uh, that 
that we know enough about these booms to regulate against them. Um, but I'm, sh you know, he also warns that, you know, that if these situations reemerge, that you could have another crash like that. Um, quote. He says, the market will not go on a speculative rampage without some rationalization. But during any future boom, some newly rediscovered virtuosity of the free enterprise system will be cited. It will be pointed out that people are justified in paying the present prices, indeed almost any price, to have an equity position in the system. And so he's saying the fundamental logic that caused the great crash is still there and can easily be uh, revived because as long as we believe in this mythology of of the, of the free market, of the Adam Smith kind of logic, you know, you're, you know, what can go wrong? All right, that's the Great Crash. This in the previous episode is my coverage of the Great Crash. So next I'll be looking at the Affluent Society. I'll do two parts on this one as well. It's, it's a little bit of a longer book, a little bit more than 200 pages, but, um, but not much. So um, we'll be looking at this. And this is a great book. I think it's his, his first really great text uh, in trying to describe American life. And it's one of the most relevant for us today because he deals with issues like how to deal with production. When, when, when the problem of production is solved, and that's how he defines the affluent society. When the problem of production is solved, when people are no longer at risk of starving and not having housing, when, when you reach a certain level of post-scarcity, you know, what was that society look like? And it's something we had never seen before. And Galbraith is trying to describe that. And then it's pitfalls and it's opportunities. So I like this book very much. I'm looking forward to talking about the affluent society in the next two episodes. So that's going to be it for now, though. Uh, I'll talk to you next time. Um, but in the meantime, if you have any thoughts about the great crash, uh, what have you read about the great crash? Have, are there any other great books that you'd recommend about it? Um, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. But in any case, I'll see you next time with my thoughts. Depression is all a game. Either way, it's still the same. Schools are crying, too. They can't do the job they want to do. We can go to the moon and float in space. 